We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. I am so honored to welcome back my favorite crime writer working today. Novelist Megan Abbott is the Edgar winning author of such acclaimed rich works as Give Me Your Hand, You Will Know Me, The Turnout, Dare Me, Queenpin, and more. Her newest book, entitled Beware the Woman, is set to release on May 30th from Penguin Random House and is already available for pre-order. Megan, thank you so much for being here again. How are you doing and how is 2023 treating you so far? Good. I'm so happy to be back. This is already a highlight. Um, January is never my strongest month, but the the excuse to do a deep dive into some movies I love is the perfect way to uh, get through those those cold, dreary months at the beginning of the year. (laughs) Yeah, it's always kind of um, a darker time of year. You're like, oh, it's a new year and it seems daunting. So always good to go back and watch some movies. (laughs) So what have you been up to lately? And while I know I will be bringing you back for your new novel this summer, what can you tell us about Beware the Woman and any of your projects? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, Beware the Woman comes out in at the end of May, as you said, and it's, um, it's really about a, it's about a young woman, newly married, newly pregnant with her first child who goes to the upper peninsula of Michigan. I'm from Michigan and, uh, uh, to meet her father-in-law, um, really spend the time with him for the first time in this beautiful uh, sort of paradise up there. It's a very remote part of uh, Michigan and very close to um, Fargo territory, in fact, because, of course, most of Fargo is set in uh, in, in that, uh, not in Fargo, but in the uh, upper Midwest. Um, yes. But um, yeah, so it's and, and things go awry. Let's just say it's all set Ooh. in this house um, up there over a course of a few days, and um, I had lots of movie inspirations, which we can talk Ooh, about. That's uh, exciting. So it's one that takes place on a set period of time, just a few days, yes, primarily. Oh, right. I love that. Always my favorite, and yeah. uh, um, feel because you have that tension built in, of course, and um, and you you know that 
you know, that that's just sort of a structure I love. So, uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a nail biter, I hope. <laughs> oh, good. A good sense of, uh, suspense and doom and yes I cannot (laughs) wait are we gonna maybe cover some of the movies that inspired you today or are there any you want to give a shout out to just as we were saying you know I mean no one does dread better than Schrader and of course Schrader is also from Michigan from the other side of the state Grand Rapids which will come up with one of our movies and yeah um, I've always thought that Maybe that was one of the reasons I feel so simpatico. Um, it's just Michigan, um, Midwest in general, but in particular, Michigan has particular qualities. Uh, uh, the Midwestern uh, veneer and uh, the sort of complexities roiling beneath. So, yes, yeah, so that's I, so good. <laughs> I know, I think that's one of the reasons I kind of felt like a kinship or a connection with you because I lived most of my life, um, in the Midwest, mostly in the Minneapolis area, a little bit in the Chicago area when I was growing up. And so we kind of had some similar memories of life back there and sensibilities. So yeah, this seems to feed right into that. But I am really excited to have you back for today's show to discuss Paul Schrader, a writer-director whose work has shaped a significant amount of film history from his early years as a film critic turned screenwriter who wrote Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver to his own career helming movies of his own, like American Gigolo, which I discussed last spring with Karina Longworth that I'm sure we're going to reference today, and I'm also set to cover again soon on an episode devoted exclusively to early Richard Gere. As we mentioned before, we are talking, of course, about the one and only Paul Schrader, and in analyzing his more under-discussed movies today, we'll have come full circle from that first episode that we did together on underrated Martin Scorsese. So before we get into the movies you selected today of Hardcore, Patty Hearst, The Comfort of Strangers, Light Sleeper, and Autofocus, and I'm sure we're going to reference all kinds of other ones, I'd love to know what it is beyond the Michigan connection, of course, as we established, of what it is about Paul Schrader and that dread and just what he does as a filmmaker and craftsman of his work that maybe first fascinated you and still does to this day. Yeah. yeah, I think about it all the time because, like, I mean, Schrader is a fairly divisive figure, actually. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, uh, not as divisive as one of my other favorites, Brian De Palma, but like in that realm, I would say. Oh, like, I love De Palma. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so, yeah. So, so you either love him or hate him. Um, and, and I think he's become much more beloved in the last few years. He's had this sort of second a career resurgence following first reform is um and which has been great to see but he's had real dips in his career and in fact underappreciated or uh or under discussed trader i mean there's like whole other tiers we're not even going deep in oh i know we could do the canyons you know oh wow yeah light of day i just rewatched that too yeah i thought i had never seen it and then midway through i'm like i remember this yes i did yes yes and i think you know i i i think it will maybe maybe partially today's conversation will illuminate it for me but I think there's number one, I think maybe because he comes from film criticism and that's like a really hard leap to make. And I, you know, I came from academia and from an analytical 
approach. And he has this famous analogy that he, many people, he's talked about in many interviews, but I heard him say it on stage once at Lincoln Center about how, you know, people will always ask him how he could have been a film critic and then become a writer director. And he would talk, he would have this analogy of uh, a woman giving birth and uh, in the, in the operating room and, um, and that this is this, this this wonderful creation that's about to come forward, and <laughs> let the critic in the equivalent of uh, letting the um, the coroner in the room. And if you let that coroner in, the baby will die. So, uh, in other words, you can't let these two parts of your head it, uh, put them in conversation because yeah. the um, it's so it, it's sort of put shackles on your unconscious which you need to have access to 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 be creative um That's in some ways to be a good critic too but you know that but um so I always think about that having you know written my first book was an academic book and uh, yes. yes exactly and, yeah. and I can't think about that when I write you know I can't think about it just becomes so uh, tortured, I suppose. And yeah. Schrader really lets his id <laughs> ride these movies, but it's also very tangled with it. his um, religious upbringing and his, his Midwestern uh, morality. And I guess I identify with all of those things. And also the classic noir trope that he deals with in so many of his movies of the the person alone um, that is sort of the voyeur and doesn't connect with anybody. And that's certainly a, a figure that if you write crime fiction, you're inevitably going to be writing about. So I guess there's lots of connection. Yeah. That God's lonely man or yes. the man alone in his room, who's always writing in his notebooks, or there's a great <laughs> voiceover. Nobody writes yeah. voiceover like Schrader for sure. But that kind of goes back to like Kane. Yes. And uh, Dashiell Hammett and Raymond right. Chandler and kind of trouble is my business, you know, just this one man who's trying to figure things out. It's sort of like, you know, the first movie that we're going to talk about um, chronologically or one of them is Hardcore, this man on a mission. And what's so great about that is it's a man you wouldn't expect to undertake this journey. Like he's right. not a detective. He's not a hard boiled figure. Um, Schrader has said that, you know, light of day was about his mom and hardcore is about his dad. And so he's basically writing about his dad. Yeah. Yeah. Which tells you so much, um, about him. And, um, and it's sort of, it is one of the more weirdly given that he's sort of like a regular guy, the George C. Scott character in hardcore, he's one of the more elusive because we don't have a voiceover for him. He doesn't, he's, he is this Midwestern Calvinist guy not sharing his feelings or mm-hmm. isn't particularly self-reflective as a, as a lot of Schrader central characters are, even if they're um, blind to certain aspects of themselves, they often are able to talk about it in, the, in their diaries and their writings or to other people. And, and I think the George C. Scott, it's interesting that um, the remove and, and Schrader sort of in some ways is really critical of hardcore. Um, he is. Yeah. 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 He really um, has uh, spoken. I guess think it's on the commentary he does that is you know he really is hard on it. It's only his second movie, and and mm-hmm. he had a difficult as every director working with George C. Scott. Oh to. my gosh, the <laughs> stories about George C. Scott that are in Schrader on Schrader are insane. Yes. 
George C. Scott was unhappy at the time. He directed a couple of films which hadn't done well, and he was resentful about that. Also, he had a drinking problem. One night we were shooting in San Francisco in the Tenderloin area. It was about midnight, and we were planning to wrap that part of the shoot, fly to San Diego the next day, and start work again on Monday. All George had to do in the scene was enter a bar and look around. I knew I could light that section very quickly, whereas other sections would take an hour or two. Normally, I would have shot him first, but I checked with the AD and said, Can we let George sit in his trailer for two or three hours? Everyone said, Sure, he's a professional. But then when the time came for his scene, I started sending emissaries to his trailer, and he just wouldn't come out. Finally, I went to see him myself. He was sitting in the back of his trailer with an empty bottle of vodka in front of him. He was drunk, and he was pissed off. I walked to him and said, Hi, George. He said, This movie's a piece of shit. So I started to reason with him, but he said, This is shit. You're a terrific writer, but you're a terrible director. You should not be directing. So I said, Yes, George, I see you're right. I've made a terrible mistake. But now I have to finish the job, so will you come and help me? He says, I'll come on one condition. What is it, George? You have to promise me you'll never direct again. So I got down on my knees and promised, and he got up and did his one-minute shot, and then we finished the main part of the shoot. There was a hiatus. We went to Michigan to shoot a spring scene just for a couple days. We're sitting in a bar at the hotel, and George is at the bar, and I'm at a table. All of a sudden, they hear this booming voice. Traitor! I walk over, and he's got variety in his hands. There's an announcement. I'm going to do American Gigolo with John Travolta. He said, Traitor, you promised me you would never direct again. I said, George, what can I say? I lied. Yes, a notorious alcoholic and a yes, abusive difficult person. man. Sure. Yes. <laughs> so if he wouldn't deal with his daddy issues, he's really got some daddy on this. I <laughs> know. Yeah, he almost had Warren Beatty, but Beatty wanted it to be a wife, not a daughter. And uh, <laughs> nope, exactly. <laughs> He would have had a, an issue with Beatty at that time in his career, too. So totally. he was going after some interesting guys. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It would have. I mean, I think he already had a struggle for control, as his early yeah. directors do. And I think Beatty would have taken over the whole operation. And also, I don't know that. Yeah, I can't. There's so many parts that you always hear that Beatty was in conversations with and you can never imagine him in them because. No. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, he would never play, want to play anyone with a teenage daughter, even when he was definitely. No. Good. <laughs> um, but like I'm it, trying to get dates here. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, or even understood that. I mean, to me, it's uh, I was trying to I'm always defending this movie. I, I will say in the sort of crime writer noir world, it is maybe even more, more divisive because um, I think that everyone would love this movie that loves um Crime fiction, because just as you were saying, he is that figure. He is that lone man who has to go into the wilderness. And and yeah. the detective and the hardball hero really derives from the Western hero. And this is That's really a Yes, exactly. It's yeah. the or the naked yeah. spur. Yes, exactly. And that's really the story that's being told. It's such a, an American, especially an American male story, American white male story. And um, and one you have to reckon with ultimately in the genre one way or another. But the ending is really splits people um, mm -hmm. in the movie. And, and it's also one of the things that Schrader dislikes about it because it wasn't the ending he wanted. So I know uh, I found his ending to be very fascinating that he wanted 
this man to go on this journey and be looking for vengeance. And then you find out that, spoiler alert for everyone, but you find out that the daughter died like in a car accident or something just completely secondary, had nothing to do with this underworld that she falls into in adult um, porn movies on a field trip basically for her church she you know winds up we don't really have also the background on how that all came to be i think that might be a little bit i mean schrader's going to be in the male characters heads and i think maybe that is hurting slightly in this but i think it's great when i watched it um i realized that i can't remember if i saw it actually either i saw it so many years ago that i couldn't remember it totally or it was new to me, but uh, the character of Nikki, a young yes. prostitute that the best. The best. <laughs> when I watched it, I was like, <laughs> Megan would love this girl and would want to write an entire book about her or a book series, yes. and I would buy them all. Yes. Yes, season yes. Holly in an incredible performance. I dressed up as her from this movie for Halloween party this best year. She's Did so you? that's so good. She is, you know, a sex worker and, and she's really like, you know, George C. Scott keeps getting doors slammed into him. You know, he's just having no success trying to find his daughter. And she's the first person that helps him. So structurally, you know, you're going to love her. And yeah. I know Schrader also was, that was another source of criticism, not because season Hubley isn't good. She's great, but he really thought she was too pretty for the part. He really wanted some Diana Scarwood, who's also very pretty. Diana Scarwood, yeah. people, you know, from Mommy Dearest or, um, mm-hmm. um, fish, right. Um, but she, you know, she's, he, he really didn't want her to, um, be this, you know, she wanted to die, you know, I don't know who knows what, but he, um, but I think she's so great and you eat her she feels um she's just a breath of life in a in a in a pretty grim and i even and grim i love but a pretty grim movie and you're so grateful for her yeah Um, and you needed that mindset of a female character and also just how do they function because otherwise this movie could almost be its criticism of you know not giving voice to these girls that are just kind of used and abused in this industry. And so you get her, you realize she is deluding herself. There's a lot of contradictions about her, but such a good performance and a really, you need that life force to kind of help balance George C. Scott. Otherwise this movie would be so um, just a slog, I think at times to get through. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, I think Peter Boyle, who plays a detective, also also gives it that uh, uh, and and seediness. And yeah, (laughs) yeah. but he's sort of he's real and human. And he, you know, yes, he's really, really um, a kind of a classic figure in crime fiction, too, is that guy who's sort of a a soiled a soiled guy but you know essentially a, a good guy he doesn't want things to go really wrong um no. and he he's worried about in some ways because he's being paid to but he said he's sort of generally i think worried about how this is gonna go and i will say i think you, you can't need to you can't know any more about the daughter or that ending wouldn't land at all That's you know she, yeah when she sort of reveals how emotionally isolated um in mm-hmm. those final moments that her her upper you know how she fell and the the mother is gone and you later first you think she's dead but it turns out she she no, she laughed that was a good twist yeah sure. and so 
Yeah. And so you need to sort of suddenly be like, oh, my gosh, you know, the, and this poor girl. And and it really is the ending of The Searchers, which Schrader's original ending is not. I mean, it is really, yeah. I think, much more ambiguous than Schrader gives it credit for. Because I, for one, um, again, spoilers about, you know, he she goes home with him, or at least we're led to believe to. But yeah. I don't feel good about it for either of them. Um, no, I can't imagine. Yeah, like where she's going to end up after that. Like, how do you process that? And And how's he going to treat her? Um, Yes, or everyone who knew about it, for sure. Yes, Yes. so it feels so um, complex to me. And I think, you know, I think sometimes with, you know, with any creative person, they, they have this version that they want and they can't see how maybe the thing they created is actually in some ways better yeah. um, he let um, the critic in the room oh no yeah. yes <laughs> yes 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 so i i think um i do think it does all the there's a great piece by um jim hemphill um about this movie and how he thinks even though schrader doesn't like it that it's really his most personal film and maybe that's the source of some of his complicated feelings about it. I hate a line in the film is where he says, I, I don't care what's happening in the world. I don't care who's on Johnny Carson. I really don't care. And that's an attitude I really respect. I've made two or more or less autobiographical films, Hardcore, which is about my father, and Light of Day, which is about my mother. I think they both may have failed commercially because they're a little too personal. There's also a delicious line in Hardcore that's taken from one of my uncles, which is at the beginning, at the Christmas party. The kids are sitting around watching some innocuous TV special, and the uncle walks in and turns off the set. This is something that actually happened to me. And he says, you know who makes television? All the kids who couldn't get along here go out to Hollywood and make TV, and they send it back here. Well, I didn't like them when they were here, and I don't like them now when they're out there. This struck me as absolutely true. That's what we all do, you know. Misfits from small towns across America go out to Hollywood, make TV and movies, and pump it back into our parents' homes to try and make them feel guilty. Um, it is about his father in many ways and himself, and, you know, his sort of um, <clears throat> conflicted relationship to his past and his history and his sort of you know, um, the scenes in Michigan and Grand Rapids are the most accurate to um, Michigan that I've ever seen. It that's the yeah. western side of the state, which is much more conservative. I'm from the eastern side, but it's so um, it feels so despairing and lifeless and sort of haunted that even the sort of danger and salaciousness of Los Angeles and San Francisco, and there's, they feel so intoxicating by comparison, even though they're yeah. sort of hot. And I think he's so good at, at contrasting those. And then slowly showing George C. Scott as being, much like we see with John Wayne and the Searchers, in many ways a very dangerous person because he's so controlling and um, and does have this capacity for violence. And I think the fact that we don't get in his head makes that turn also much more satisfying. That's true. Yeah. I mean, the searchers is definitely something that is used throughout his filmography and he cited the naked spur as well, which is one of my favorite Westerns, the ending where 
uh, Jimmy Stewart has to admit that he was going to, you know, turn in a guy's corpse for money. And um, it kind of just shows you that these men think they're crusading or they're doing something so noble. And at the end, it's, you know, they're not really saving these girls. It's more about their own sort of issues and their fragile masculinity and what yes. they need for ego. And so this is kind of an interesting one to pair with Taxi Driver in that respect a little bit. And um, I know part of the reason, too, that he has issues with it is because he's like, you know, because of my upbringing and I was late as a bloomer, I became a little too obsessed or a little too fascinated with sexuality and pornography. And he said, so it feels disingenuous or that I'm um, it's too kid in a candy store was a phrase that he used for the second half of the movie. And in a way, though, it might help the uh, father character because he comes from a background just like Paul Schrader. So again, it might be it help and it might hurt a little bit, but I think it works very, very well. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. And I think um, it's um, I think his sort of how tantalizing this is. I do. I think you're really onto something there. It just sort of seeps into the movie so that um it really makes that second half feel yeah. as this lulling energy and you're sort of yeah. <laughs> towards it and, and season Hubley. Um, she's also just a great female character because the first scene is, is with her is in a peep show booth and she just sort of puts so one both foot up. This isn't Paris, Texas. It's, it's a different peep show. Yes. And it's framed, you know, very, um, cleverly and you just feel her power and um, and then in some ways you could say she's the cliched hooker with the heart of gold but I mean I always feel like I'm sort of that phrase sort of annoys me in some ways sort of saying that you you can't you shouldn't be able to have a heart if you're a hooker or like exactly (laughs) and of course there's only one way to be yeah that's right. That's right. And she, um, you know, she's, she is definitely herself, you know, she's, yes. I mean, she's such a rich, and I think, um, um, I think Schrader isn't giving himself enough credit with the creation of her, um, and, and what season Hubley brings to it. It's really one of the underrated actresses of, of that era. Yes, for sure. And this takes us to another female character, of yes. um, one based in reality, Patty Hearst. He was a director for hire on this project. He had had a dud with Light of Day, and he said he wanted to just get back in the saddle. They were going to take basically any director that said yes, kept the budget low, and said he didn't need a lot of money for it, just wanted to make a movie. And I had seen this maybe for the first time four or five years ago. And so this was just my second time. I liked it better the second viewing. It's still not my favorite, but I think the first time you just, it's too much almost, or you're not fully sure what he's doing. Is it too experimental? Um, And also it kind of goes against this idea because our protagonist is so passive and she's just, you know, in a closet, it's dark, there's disembodied voices everywhere, it's scary. And, you know, it goes against that idea that as Schrader says, we go to the movies because we feel impotent or our lives are out of control. And it gives us the illusion of control or the safety of watching somebody go through something. And 
that's kind of anti Patty Hearst. So what are your thoughts yeah. on this one? I mean, I, I agree. It's a better on the second watch because it's so overwhelming at the beginning yeah. of the time, because for people who haven't seen it, you were in the closet with her essentially for um, uh, much of the first, gosh, I would say 20 minutes, half hour, even longer. I mean, it's really intense. Um, and I think this is an extraordinary movie. I have to say, I, I rewatch it. I always liked it, but I think it's just like super feminist in, in a way that I have never seen this story told. You know, the Patty, there's so many ways the Patty Hearst story has been told and so many yeah. obnoxious and arrogant books that don't understand how trauma works and um, and are really, really much more interested in the apparatus around this. So this isn't about the investigators. It's not about her family. No. It's not about any, you are only with her. You only have her experience. You, you are, this is not where you're in newsrooms and you're yeah. doing you What's know, going on for the police? No. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> exactly. And it draws directly, Nicholas Kazan's screenplay draws directly from Patty Hearst's memoir, which is an incredible memoir that Joan Didion famously wrote about. Um, as be, you know, there's this great line um, that Didion uses. It's in the memoir and ends in the movie where she says, "Don't examine your feelings. Never examine your feelings. They're no help at all." And that's what Patty Hearst is slowly realizing that to survive, that yeah. she is going to have to, you know, this is she's going to have to um, give herself over to to this to her captors. And um, and Didion compares it to. Um, you know, sort of, you know, sort of beginnings of America and and expansion to the West and the sort of, you know, there's so many, mm-hmm. there's captivity narratives to bring us back to the searchers. There's so much. Um, and this, this is not that many years after the Patty Hearst uh, um, story. And there's so much we understand now more about how trauma works and how, yeah. um, how how you do and do not behave when you're in this crisis situation and this is the only way that viewers i think could really feel it is you have to have that sort of you have to be with her the entire time and you have yes. to see how terrified she is and you have to see how she has no will how weak she becomes you have to have their voices and um and there's some the, the i mean ving rames plays the sort so of good thank you yes like utterly charismatic and hypnotic and some of that sort of Mary band they're all great Frances Fisher and Dana Delaney and I know and yes. Forsyth who and it's such an incisive critique of sort of the failures of the the far left in that era because there's sort of the exotization of Bing Rames' character yes. because blackness. <laughs> and William Forsyth is like, I want to be black, you know. He's so yeah, he's t- trying to talk like him and look yeah. like him, and yes, yes. yeah, it's it's, it's incredible. <laughs> it's, it's yeah, go it's ahead. Fascinating. I was just gonna say it's also kind of a cool movie for people who like movies because um, this group of people that held her hostage were extremely media savvy and obsessed with the uh, fame or their 15 minutes or how they were being portrayed or conceived. And like, you know, there's a line about a propaganda coup and now for a photo shoot, they're kind of the Instagram group before yeah. there was Instagram, you know, where you know, hashtag squad goals, essentially, but the (laughs) villainous version of that. And um, so it's also about acting and performance and leading people to believe you're with them. Or in her case, she did have to disassociate. They say basically a person can 
withstand about 10 days and then that's it. And 10 days is like the max, essentially. A lot of people don't get that far. So, but it's also just what she had to do to survive and how they're all performing on some level. Like this couple who likes to pretend they're so happier in love than she winds up on the lamb with them and what a nightmare that is. I don't know if you've ever been in the car or something. This happened to me (laughs) where I got picked up by like my friend and her husband. And I could tell when I got in the car, they had just had some massive fight. So they both talked to me, but like only me separately. And it was like a two hour drive because of traffic. And I was like, this is going to, so watching that this time, I was thinking about, you know, how they like to pretend they're so above everything and free love and, but they're just exactly like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, you know, the, the thing is that people also never understand and so many renderings of the story is that she thought that they were this large organization. They conveyed to her as one faction of this, this everywhere. And, and, and that's the thing that, you know, they've, has never in this other versions, I mean, there's this terrible book that just Jeffrey Tubin wrote this book a few years ago that enraged me. That's so critical of Patty Hearst for her class privilege and and and, oh, and just that, really imagine that is just really insensitive to sort of the female female experience of being ritually raped for you know, know. That, and that that can have an, an impact on you and, and all the money in the world is not going to help you um when you're in in that situation i think you know schrader is very sympathetic to her mm-hmm. in ways that um, I find so moving and there's this, you know, towards the end when she's, um, when she's freed, there's that great line that um, when she starts to reflect on what happened to her and she's sort of talking about it and she says, um, she's talking about the people's ideas about her because she's sort of, she's sort of kidnapped and raped again by public perception that they, and she says, um, no one wants to accept that their mental state is so fragile. And I think that's what pinpoints people. They need to believe that she, um, they, that she was turned or that she was just a spoiled rich girl or all these different phases. Cause they, no one wants to know how quickly they could be broken down. Um, as you say, 10 days or less, and that you could, you would, you end up doing things you never thought you would do. And I think that that's so, um, uh, I suspect that comes from the memoir too. Um, but I, I, I love that, um, Schrader gives voice to that. And I, cause I think it's still, people still don't want to view that story that way. And you still hear endlessly as women, you hear this, like, why didn't, you know, women after trauma, yeah. why they why did she wear a skirt or why did she why did she talk to the person after you know we've heard this so much through me too and sort of people don't want to explore that and I I love this movie for that yeah and I think you brought up a really good point about essentially you know she is sort of systematically raped again um, after by the media but also one scene I thought was just amazing that it came from male brains. I, I'm wondering if if she wrote about it and this was in her book, but I love that they actually had it in the movie is 
she had been through just so much rape and torture. And then when she's in prison, which is a Schrader thing, in this case, she's basically in one prison and then another prison. And so we have prisons within prisons and it's all very Schrader. But there's a scene where she has to submit to a gynecologic exam. And it looks very harrowing and especially traumatic right after what she had gone through. They're like, well, this is a medical procedure. And I just thought, wow, they actually have this point of view of what that would be like in the movie. And I really admired them for that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And it's just sort of all the parts of the story that you never see in uh, countless documentaries, et cetera. Um, And, and I think it only works if you, if it does that structure of it, I think puts so many people off at the beginning. I think you have to do it that way to have that feeling. And, I will tell people it's, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a movie full. There is a lot of humor in it. It's not, um, um, yeah, darkly I ironic. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and it's, you know, but it, 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 it really understands what it, it's really trying to do something very subversive and to do it, it has to get you in a different place. Um, and, and it gives voice to her, um, in such an extraordinary way. So I know, I mean, I mean, I, I don't think Schrader gets that much flack for the maleness of his movies, but he gets a little bit of it. And I oh, always yeah. go to this because um, to me, it's, um, you know, he had any number of ways to shoot this or to cast it or to or to direct the scenes. And I think he made all the right choices, just as you say, that exam scene, you know, that a lot of directors yeah. would have um, or, or would have presented it differently. And oh, you, for sure. Yeah, you just feel like, oh no, we're going right back in, you know, and just here in that moment. Yes, I know. And I think Natasha Richardson is amazing in it. There was criticism because they chose a British actress to play her, but an actress is an actress and she's very remarkable. And I love that. Um, Also, Dana Delaney, who's in it. She's in a movie that we're going to talk about later on. (laughs) And, uh, but yeah, the next one starred Natasha again. We have Comfort of Strangers, which is one that I think I first saw just maybe two years ago on the Criterion channel because it wasn't one that was very easy to find before that. I I don't think unless, you know, maybe I just missed it. But, you know, it's based on a book by Ian McEwen, adapted by Harold Pinter. So what a pedigree. And then it's taken over by Schrader. He talks about sometimes needing that third party or the creativity of not writing and being in your head and instead working from someone else's script and story. And I think this is a nice combo of all three of those people. You have the, as um, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, George Kuvaros uh, wrote in this book, Paul Schrader, that I read. Essentially, you have the perversity of the Ian McEwen books because he loves that. Yeah. You have the thing Pinter loves to do, which is have them like say one thing, but mean another or do one thing and it'd be very contradictory. And then you have all of the obsessions and the weirdness of Schrader. Yeah. Yes, that's perfectly put. I think all those influences are there and they all blend together. And this is a movie I saw when it first came out, but it it was weirdly unavailable for so long until I rewatched it when it came on Criterion. And I thought it, held up beautifully it's one of the more visually sumptuous and expensive of schrader's movies it's um 
it's quite hypnotic and has this sort of erotic stupor that you're in for so much. Yes. It's, I mean, I guess it's sort of obvious if you've seen Don't Look Now, but it really recalls Don't Look Now, which is um, also set in Venice and is also about, like this is about a couple um, on a, the, you know, in this case, in that case, they they lost a child. In this case, it's Rupert Everett and Tatra. They're sort of having a difficulty in their relationship, and they so they're trying to um, um, leave the, the the struggles of their life. They both have exes and uh, stepchildren, and they're trying to return to the magic of Venice and um, and things. It's it's all vibes. I mean. <laughs> It's really it really vibe. is, yes. And, you know, they, they use the architecture in such an interesting way. And they talked about, you know, don't look now and the canals. And we've seen stuff shot in Venice that's very, very creepy, but they get lost. There's sort of a labyrinthine, uh, a labyrinth thing going on through this movie, a motif. And it's just, it's very eerie. I also like that uh, Schrader is one of those people who likes to have his beginnings and his ends sort of comment on each other or be opposite um, ends or mirrored images. And I think this is an interesting one uh, because it's Christopher Walken uh, doing this insane voiceover that only Christopher Walken could do, you know, and he's he's just so creepy and brilliant in this because, I mean, he's been doing it. He was the guy in Annie Hall and he he's great with these monologues, I think. And also, this was around the time that I'm sure you remember uh, the Continental yeah. character <laughs> that he played on yeah. SNL. And this sort of seems like, you know, the straight version of that, essentially. Yes. 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 I mean, this is like in some ways now that I'm thinking of it, it's sort of a classic Schrader structure in that except it's with a couple where they're in a strange place and and they're yeah. getting they're sort of confused and disoriented and, and Christopher Walken sort of comes to seem to save them. Uh, I know. And, uh, he's the season Hubley, essentially. Yes, yes. yeah. And he's, um, you know, he's just talking, you know, he just has this incredible monologue about his father and how he would comb his, uh, yes. his mustache <laughs> with a mascara uh, wand. And um, he's just, you know, he's married to uh, Helen Mirren and the two of them just sort of unlock something in in a central couple and and you just start the sense of menace and then the yes. set, as it goes on is almost overwhelming uh at the same time that it gets like more and more um um you know sex sexually uh weird and kinky and sort of yes. Yeah, you feel like a warrior watching it, and uh, you really do. Yeah, Angelo Battlementi score, which is so. Um, yeah, it's, it's. I don't. This is one I don't want to spoil because it has the ending is very sudden and quite shocking, but. It's um you know it's not like it's not like in some ways don't look now as a more conventional movie which is not a conventional movie at all this is not a conventional story no. um, but it's it's very dreamlike very freudian very um um you're you're not quite sure what's been undone but it feels terrifying yes. It really does. Yeah, it kind of works in that way with The Shining. Like, was this in them before they started yes. this journey? Or did they, uh, as you said, did something get unlocked by this other couple? 
because what's so interesting is early on you see these two beautiful people in this beautiful setting and all they're doing so is beautiful. bickering they're like essentially yeah. yeah they're kind of like picking at each other and you know she mentioned a church was beautiful oh you said that last time or they're kind of picking fights or it's a very strange dynamic at first where I'm sure everyone has seen couples on vacations where it's like they thought that would help their problems and you know they're still there essentially and then as it goes on, they become charged by this couple and the weird, kinky games that they play. There's, you know, an element of S&M that kind of uh, Schrader sort of toys with throughout his filmography as well. Also, it has to do with, and again, this is Pinter and being a playwright, storytelling and how that can be erotic yes. or yes. Uh, what you do. Yes, there's a lot of stories. Yeah. 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 And you don't know, like, are half of these stories false? Did he just make this up? What is going on? Or he's lied to himself so much? I mean, there's a lot of questions with this one. This is another one like Patty Hearst. I think that plays better the second time. The first time you're like, what the hell am I watching? Yes. I saw some letterbox review that, that said Mike White definitely saw this before writing Right Lotus season two. And so if that's a selling <laughs> point to people, it is a little bit how you know, because that also deals with couples who are away and it sort of instead of solving their marital issues, it sort of exposes something at the center of them or unleashes something or it creates it depending on your point of view. Um, but I think um, I think it is one you kind of have to sink into and in some ways, even though, you know, the ending, if you see it the second time, you you can more sort of there's so, as you say, like those scenes, each scene is about something and then it, that and on the surface and then you start to realize all those sort of layers with that great pinter uh, way of people talking around what they're really talking about. And I think mm -hmm. the more you watch it, the more you un unpack it and um, and your sort of opinion changes about everything. So it's a really like sort of great Freudian puzzle of a movie and, and uh, I think a great a great merging of, as you say, different styles, aesthetics, but they all kind of find their, their, in the Venn diagram, they all kind of find these great crossover points. I agree with you. And I think it was really smart of you to say, we don't want to spoil this one because it is a spell that I think um, you should probably give yourself over to, kind of like this couple, essentially. The other thing I did like about it, though, is a lot of times in movies when couples are on vacation together in films, they sort of divide by gender, like, well, he is exactly like his male buddy and she is like her or we don't know. But watching it uh, the second time, you start wondering which one really is Helen Mirren here of the younger set or which one has a little Christopher Walken in them, essentially. And what is being awakened, um, especially as it does get more erotic and the... I, I don't know how to say that without spoiling it, but the dialogue that is yes. said kind of pays off in weird ways later. Yeah. It's That's right. That's right. No, you're right. And I think you're right about how Schrader does like to do that with the beginning and the end. It, it all kind of loops back around and you've come to the same place, but it looks different like a dream. I mean, it does have almost like the structure of a night, a nightmare, a sort of erotic dream turned nightmare. And yeah, Maybe that's the way to view it, almost Lynchian in that way. Um, mm -hmm. and, and Helen Mirren's performance, which is like particularly deranged, could definitely have been in He's David Lynch's so movie. great. Yes. <laughs> incredible. Yeah. Yes. 
I know it's like, you know, basically behind uh, by the dumpster at the diner in Mulholland yeah. Drive where we yeah. don't know what's going on, but yeah. you know, it's going to shock you by the end yeah. of the day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, absolutely great. Well, the next movie is one that I know we both love quite a bit. I think we talked about it the first time we did an episode on Martin Scorsese. That's Light Sleeper, which I think is actually my favorite Paul Schrader movie, uh, my favorite one of his Man in the Room, Man Alone uh, films that always ends at the end uh, involving a prison and a, a <laughs> shot where a woman is visiting the, the perp or our main character. And I think this is really a phenomenal film. And I love the cinematography here. I love the music by Michael Bean. So yeah, let's get into Light Sleeper. Yes. Oh, I'm glad you say you like the music. I hate the music and I can't figure out why. Oh, um, really? Yeah. Well, maybe it's, <laughs> um, as I'm older than you and it, it seems to like the music, like it was really like, so dates it for me in a way and the rest oh. of the movie is dated, but I feel like that might be my, my bag. But because one of the things I love about it, especially rewatching it with some distance is it, 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 as you say, it looks so beautiful. It's got this sort of purple gray smoky sort of sense mm -hmm. of like a, a sort of colorful wild new york of the 70s and 80s is gone and it's sort of become muted and this sort of almost vampiric and um there's it's 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 just gorgeous to look at but it's a sense of like almost this sort of beautiful shell with the purple and the silver and but there was something alive that was was gone i think that kind of is reflected in this central character, Willem Dafoe, is sort of this prestige drug dealer who feels kind of lost and 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 it it's so funny because I know at the time Schrader was saying this is the end of his trilogy of lone men uh, with uh, Taxi Driver and American Gigolo, like lone men who who hate their jobs and like to yeah uh, he uh, made a bunch of other ones <laughs> yeah yes. we had the um, walkers, of course yes it was only first reformed first, yeah. yes yes. Um, but I think this is so different from the earlier two because Willem Dafoe, you you feel he feels very um relatable is not the right word, but you he's much more open hearted than yes. the more um, remote um American gigolo and taxi driver. You know, he he um he's he's a haunted person and he he's not uh he's not a um a violent or scary person or a, a, an emotionally aloof person. I think he's actually a pretty emotionally available person. In this, so it really is. Yes. Uh, you can tell he had been through things. He's a 40 year old drug dealer. He's also a recovering addict himself. And he lost, um, he calls it a marriage, but were they really married? We don't really know, but essentially a wife uh, figure at that point. And he has regrets and he's, values human connection he still loves his ex's mom and sister and so you see some tenderness there that i think willem dafoe um, is the perfect person to do that uh, especially we talked off air before this began about american gigolo not being our favorite of the schraders and i think it's maybe has to do with a critique on Schrader, which is his coldness, uh, kind of goes to his um, transcendental style and his love of art films. And also he says he thinks some of it comes from, you know, how people don't touch each other growing up, essentially where he is from. 
And he doesn't have those nostalgic memories wrapped up in movies like, you know, you and I do watching movies with our family and our friends as kids. He cites uh, Scorsese and Spielberg and, and all of the films that inspired them when they were little. So they have an emotional attachment to movies and nostalgia. He doesn't have any of that. So he thinks that's maybe where some of the coldness comes from. And yeah, I, think- I know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Oh, no. I was just going to say, I think this movie is maybe warmer than most of his other ones, though. Yeah. No, I think I think so, too. I mean, I don't I mean, this must be because of my I feel so I don't feel his movies are cold, but I I know most people do. But this is different. And I do wonder if it's a more it's a person who's lived a life now. Those are, you know, he was a very young man when he wrote Taxi Driver and when he made American Gigolo. And now he's lived some life. and had you know um had emotional attachments and, and maybe that explains the warmth because it's written much more warmly and and of course it's played much more warmly i always think of travolta as was supposed to originally be an american gigolo i feel like he would have given that character more life maybe more. Yeah. yeah i mean um, i love gear but more life i think yes yeah. yes he's sort of it becomes interesting. His blankness is interesting, but Charlton never would have played him that way. And I think Willem Dafoe gives this character, and it's also written as someone who has much more regret and is, um, and and you know, is really seeking to have some kind of change in his life. And I think maybe that comes from um, that his middle he's middle aged man now yeah. uh, writing, directing it, and it feels. Um, um, it has that that maturity to it that enables this sort of uh, rounder view and 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 sort of banish the the coldness is all around him but not in him. I agree with you. Yeah, I remember several years ago I did a thread on the film on Twitter, and one of the people uh, that I heard from, and it was on kind of a thirsty tweet I did about Defoe in this movie and how Schrader <laughs> was enjoying uh, giving him some shirtless scenes. I mean, he's pretty sexy in this film. And I made a joke that it's like his one good uh, sex scene. I hadn't seen Comfort of Strangers yet, of course, but that he's finally knowing how to direct sex. And the person who got a kick out of, especially the thirstier tweets, was Dana Delaney. <laughs> and so she replied she was enjoying him. And she said that to this day, that's still one of the best filmmaking experiences that she ever had in a movie she's really proud of. And I think she's really great in this. We have two excellent female performances um, that are kind of the primary ones. And they're sort of flip sides of the same coin of the same woman. One is named Anne, one is Marianne, and it's Susan Sarandon and Dana Delaney. And they're great. Yeah. They're great. And um, and the scenes really crackle with him with both of them. And they give yeah. it Susan Sarandon, though she's sort of his boss, his drug dealing boss, she's uh, such a warm, um, 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 loving presence. Yeah, it's a maternal almost, and um, and I think that that adds to it too. When you were talking, it was making me think. In some ways, this movie reminds me a little of Bringing Out the Dead, which is a Scorsese movie. Point. and, And this character feels more. In some ways, they feel like I mean, they're very different in many ways, but they seem to be haunted by their regrets and wanting to have some kind of experience. And, you know, in this, it's sort of his random seeing Dana Delaney, his ex, sort of like, you know, twice and, you know, and sort of feeling like that means something. Um, yeah, like when Cage sees Patricia Arquette's character twice, we have yes. two insomniacs. 
yes. kind of the yeah. horrors of everything they've seen and their regrets are are driving them crazy. Yeah. Actual figures, these sort of, yeah, yeah. yeah. That seems right. Um, and it is so interesting to think about now. Um, it's it's really it is really an incredible movie. And I, I'm glad it sort of feels like it's had a little bit of a people are finding it now. Um, because I do think it defies in many ways, just in the ways you're saying people's ideas of Schrader's sort of um even though it has an ending he used before, we'll use again in general. I, I actually don't have a problem with that. I think that's a sign no. of, uh, um, I mean, maybe not again, <laughs> maybe not, but. Yeah, it, not every time Schrader, but yeah, it, it really yeah. works here. And it yeah. pays off the, the earlier scene that we see in the hospital cafeteria. He's with one woman and the way it's framed. This is a movie with yes. a lot of frames within frames. He might be getting better also as a filmmaker yes, in general, so. more confident yeah. and doing interesting things. Like you brought up the uh, season Hubley with her legs up in the booth. Like he was playing with um, certain point of view and angles. We saw it in Patty Hearst. So he's kind of someone at his uh, filmmaking power in this movie. And it's a good um, middle ground there between writer and director. And I also love that it's kind of like spot the New York actor or yeah, this is a film. Yeah. So oh many great supporting See performances. See Rockwell shows up in it. Like this, yeah. he must have been 12 years old. He looks so yes. young. And, and uh, David Spade is in it. Now yeah. Sam Rockwell was also in uh like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie for like five seconds. So, you know, but it's it's great when you can watch these movies now and you're like, that guy's going to win an Oscar or yeah, yes. David Spade is going to wind up on, yeah, SNL. Yes. Yes. No, I think it, and it's, um, you know, he always is called, this is most personal movie. And I think you feel that in it too. Um, and, you know, it's a real New York, you know, it's sort of like the, um, him or his return to New York and in, in some ways, I mean, he returns to New York many times, but with this sort of structure of story, it makes it feel more personal. And this is the beginning of, right. It's the first thing he does with Defoe, but first of, of more to come. And I think, um, he's finds someone in Defoe that can really mine all of this stuff. You know, there is an actor that has all of these, sort of, is not afraid of the dark or the light. Um, and I think it's, it's a, it's, it really um, is a sort of uh, perfect avatar for him. I agree. And I also think it's great because it pays off on, those obsessions, even some lines from earlier films or Taxi Driver, you know, the garbage. And this is a movie where the garbage is literally piling up yeah. because there's a garbage strike. I mean, you know, it's it would be, I think, too on the nose in a lot of people, uh, people's hands. But I think he does it just extraordinarily well. Yeah. Yes, yes I think so too. Um, and I, yeah, I think it really is a missing piece. Like if you haven't seen this Schrader, do yourself a favor, but also it, I think is the missing piece in terms of this, the, these themes he's so interested in about, um, um, you know, alienation and, 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 uh, redemption and, um, and, and just sort of what it means to connect, uh, to sort of surrender this cage you've sort of built around yourself, um, which is, is is quite incredible. And I think is is sort of perfect to think about in relation to first reformed or card counter to come later that really extend that theme. Yes, 100 percent. 
Well, the next one is another film that does feature Willem Dafoe, who became something of a muse uh, in a role that, you know, I think only Dafoe could really <laughs> only, for play sure. in this fashion, essentially. Where, I mean, for a while after, I'm sure people were a little like apprehensive to be around <laughs> Willem Dafoe. I can't imagine dating the guy like right after that. You'd, you'd be constantly <laughs> looking for a camera everywhere he went. But we are talking about autofocus, which yes. has uh, Defoe and Greg Kinnear, who I just kind of went mini viral for sticking up for. Essentially, I said I think he's a stealthily great actor. He was I agree. The, the talk I suit agree. guy. He had these bland leading man roles, but once they kind of let him play these parts where he got to expose the panic and the pathos behind that million dollar smile essentially you saw a lot there and it was really cool to see that period of Greg Kinnear uh, I watched The Matador recently again and also Little Miss Sunshine for a different project and yeah I think this was such a good period for uh, for Greg Kinnear, especially this kind of role when he is playing a leading man who isn't what he seems. He's playing Bob Crane of Hogan's Heroes, who who led a very uh, different double life as a sex addict and recording his encounters with John Carpenter, played by Willem Dafoe. I didn't realize that this was based on a book by Robert Graysmith until it's a like... book, yeah. Okay. I, I... It's a case I'd long been, people who know the Bob Crane story, he, he was murdered and upon his upon his death, it was discovered that he had all these recordings and, and that it was sort of an open secret that he had, yeah. had developed sex addiction and um, particularly this sort of self-voyeurism that makes the movie like uncannily prescient for our current moment. Um, it's sort yeah. of, he was a really... Um, he really was a, a, a had an upset what we would now call obsessive compulsive disorder because he needed to catalog and record everything and um yeah and the book by Robert Graysmith who also wrote Zodiac the book that the David Fincher movie is based on is a great writer and the the book itself is 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 very repetitive and grim because uh uh but. I think this movie is a strange delight. I have to say, it's I mean, hilarious it, in it's places. really funny. My goodness. Yes, <laughs> I think you know it was a, it was we made money when it was made, and I, I think people really thought it was quite incredible because the first half is sort of almost traditional, but like like very witty, like biopic yeah. of like sort of sixties Mad Men era, and Bob Crane is sort of living this fair, and, yes. And middle class and suburbia, and it gets it starts like they they play with the filters and the look of the film, and it slowly gets more and more sordid. And, it and really does, yeah, it he does. Yeah, and he, he's just a tragic figure to me, Crane. Um, and and uh, I think Kinnear really gets under the skin of him and and I think Schrader really gets it and he gets the um you know he's more judgmental of Crane than he often is as a character, but I think it Kinnear I think it works because Kinnear sort of plays against that. I mean, Kinnear's always been sort of like a William Holden-ish kind of guy that if he'd had the parts that William Holden had, maybe he would have achieved some of that. Because yeah. he's so good on Sabrina, he had the whole thing. Yes, part. exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So handsome, he's so funny, and he seems so full of self-loathing. And, and yes. like he brings all that to this. And 
And uh, and it, there's something very tragic to me about it because he thinks he's just being part of the sexual revolution. Like mm-hmm. he doesn't get that he has drifted into this other territory and that he and John Carpenter, his friend who's this technology expert mm-hmm. and sort of hang, celebrity hanger on, that they have become this sort of um, a more fool. They've convinced each other that what they're doing is, is okay and great and hip and swing in and yeah, it's sort of your this, addict buddy essentially that you exactly. don't get loaded with or something exactly. Yeah. And it's yeah. just um, and, you know, it, it's you laugh out loud when you. I mean, it's it, without making fun of them. I mean, maybe a little bit. I think Schrader is having a little fun with them, but. I think it it never fully you do feel like oh no <laughs> you know your feeling yes. is like you don't have a distance from it feels like um um like how did this happen how did it go wrong you know he he keeps saying and it's got that great again Angela has got to have fun or something yeah yes, some it's, kind of thing he just thinks that he that there's not should be nothing wrong with this. This is what we're doing now. Everyone's, you know, the you know, all those old constraints are gone. You know, and and what he doesn't understand is this the the, the, the compulsive umness that has like overtaken him and that um um and how much of it is about the watching and the looking and you know I mean if anyone should understand that it's traitor so I think he's really good at teasing it out but it's I mean if you think you're gonna get like a true crime thing this is not it I mean the no. ending I think it's spoil the very ending I mean you know the ending and but they're like the voiceover is like never would have listened yeah learn a thing he is not that kind of character no yeah. Yeah, I just think it's a total knockout. Like totally the most uh, one of the most. I mean, I wouldn't say it's my favorite Trader, just because I think Schrader has, is, you know, like you, I, I, you know, light sleepers. There are so many favorites, but I think it's a, it's a, it's a really brilliant film. Um, and this was another one for hire with Schrader, but obviously one that he's perfect for. Um, and I think. He famously sort of tore apart the script and rewrote it so that it was not a more traditional biopic, but is really focused on the, as Schrader said, let's get to the good stuff. <laughs> and, it, you know, and you really see this, this descent, but it it's also, you know, the, the relationship between the two men is fascinating and this sort of gay panic about it all that is very sort of mm-hmm. sophisticated about the the tortured masculinity of men of that era and, and, um, and what the sort of, he's a little too old for the sexual revolution in certain ways. He doesn't quite understand it, thinks he's participating and it, it really gets at some complicated stuff. And, um, but in a really sort of funny, but and seedy and sort of harrowing way that um, I think is really tonally like masterful. Yeah, and I think it's a good mix, again, of the writers that were on it before. I mean, we mentioned Robert Graysmith in the book, but also Larry Karaszewski and Scott Alexander, who at that point had done Ed Wood, which is one of my favorites. They also did uh, they did the script for The People versus Larry Flint, uh, Man on the Moon. I can't remember when that came out, maybe a little bit before this, but they were kind of the go-to for biopics. They also wrote one I think is really underrated in the last like decade or so, Big Eyes, which is really good. That's a Tim Burton 
And so I think this is a good mix of Schrader and those guys because they are funny and irreverent and that's what they do very well. You really wouldn't say Schrader is funny. And I think you brought up a good point too by saying this movie starts out kind of like, oh, he's just cheating or he's just enjoying sex a little bit or he's a player. And then it gets increasingly more and more depraved. It's kind of like hardcore and how that movie works. Essentially, the second half of the film, it reminded me watching it this time. Uh, I live by Scottsdale, um, about like five, 10 minutes away from Scottsdale proper and where this uh, man died. But Watching it this time and thinking about uh, people going to see this at the theater reminded me of an experience I had as a young uh, film critic, younger, watching the movie Choke uh, with Sam Rockwell, uh, which is about sex addiction. And we, our screening was at nine in the morning. And so <laughs> it was kind of funny. I think we all kind of, everybody sat in a different area of the auditorium because we weren't sure, was it going to be hot? Was it going to be really nasty? We weren't sure what we were getting into. One of my colleagues got popcorn, which it's not really a good popcorn, especially not at nine in the morning. And as the movie started, it seemed funny. And then it gets sicker and sicker. And you realize this isn't sickness and these people can't help it. And um, so kind of watching that, it rang a bell and reminded me of that experience. But Trader also talked about things he was doing, experiments with production design, how it starts out far more ordered. You talked about the filters. That was a good observation. And then as the film gets more and more out of control, just like he does, uh, you know, everything starts getting very piled on. He looks like a hoarder. There's, when it you know, moves to handheld camera, it's, yeah. it's much less formal and, and, Chaotic. and it, and it, but it's very gradual. It, it, so you don't quite realize it's happening until, until you're in it, which is exactly what the addiction is. Yeah. What it would be like. There are many sides to being a director. You have to be a big papa and you have to be a financial conniver and you have to be a salesman and a, narrator and a lot of things but in terms of seeing an event and finding the dramatic presentation of it that really is a kind of see the pats operation i really do believe in this notion of the floating rectangle there's certain characters in a scene two people are talking then there's another character he's off screen and he's holding the floating rectangle how he moves this rectangle determines a lot about that scene you can pretend that you don't exist and just send your rectangle down to master two shot over over single single but that's still a statement. In that case, the rectangle is very important for that scene. Some scenes you do shoot that way because you don't want the audience to be terribly aware of the rectangle. Other scenes just demand it. Yes. Yes. And I'll say when this movie came out, there really wasn't a lot of conversation about addiction and obsessive compulsive disorder. And I do think it's, but it's uncannily like right about that, like so many of the elements of it. Like you see how all these sort of, um, the sex addiction, the OCD, they're, I mean, they're both compulsive, but they're, he, he had them all. And in, in the Graysmith book, you see all like he would, you know, collect every, uh, every issue of a certain magazine. It was all, it wasn't just sex related. It was really about uh, cataloging everything. And oh, it, wow. it's, it's really, it's so interesting. And I think um, that, that, that stuff, we, I think it's one of the reasons it makes it a really interesting watch now is do we do know more about this stuff? And now everyone uh, takes pictures and takes video of everything. We have a phone in our pocket at any given moment. So yes. I think really people should be more sympathetic to um, poor Bob Crane now. And I, I did want to mention, because it 
uh, you don't get the full Scottsdale experience in this movie, though he he dies there. But um, I when I uh, Patrick Milliken of the Poison Pen, famous yes. Poison Pen bookstore in Scottsdale, knew of my obsession with this case. And uh, when I went to the store once, he took me on a nighttime tour of the Bob Crane sites, like the <laughs> hotel that he used to go to the bar at, and then the um, I guess his condos now, where um, yes. hotel where he 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 died, and mm-hmm. um, um, and it was <laughs> extremely. It spooky. used to be like Hooker Heights, essentially yeah, where that hotel was. Yeah, you know, very pristine town in so many ways, and and mm-hmm. money, and um, but there, there, you know, there was there is this sort of scene that there certainly was in that era a scene there yeah. and it also there are a lot of crimes in Scottsdale and in Phoenix um that are really interesting but I remember the feeling the sort of um awful feeling um of sadness too for Bob Crane because I don't want to spoil the ending here too I mean you, most people know the end but I don't want to spoil the specifics that are very interesting and the yeah more that's been discovered about the case since the movie came out but there is something like you, you can kind of see where it's going and it goes there. Um, and I think that's what makes it different than a classic true crime because it's um, it feels like it's the only way it could go in that great Schrader way of yes. showing sort of like, once you get there, you know, it had to end here and mm-hmm. um, um, rock but, bottom essentially. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and a truly, there is a, another ode to William Holden um, with the voiceover. It really is. Spoil. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Sunset um, Boulevard really a little. Yes, yep. there's definitely. But um, I will, I, I, I couldn't recommend this movie enough to people if they haven't. It's really easy to get now, really available. And, oh, and it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. yeah it's a, it's a, sheer, a sheer delight if you can count any movie about a sex addict who's murdered. <laughs> sheer delight. Yeah. There you go, for sure. Well, I know those are the ones we wanted to focus on, but there are so many other great films. You mentioned First Reformed. Uh, We also had the the card counter recently. I remember really liking one in the 90s that I wanted to revisit for this, just to have it in my back the back of my mind that I'd forgotten about called affliction yeah that I remember being really impressed with are there any you want to give a shout I mean, out that's a real high timid is you know that's his that was his big prestige movie with the incredible novel by Russell Banks um yes. and that's an extraordinary movie and I and I did wouldn't have I wouldn't have picked that for this because it was so famous I mean it really Oscar nomination yeah yeah, yeah. Um, but I think if, but I do think people stop talking about it. So I think it's good to mention that as one with sort of towering performances at the center yes. and really just a riveting uh, movie. I, I'm also a, a big fan of Cat People, which is a, like deranged remake of the uh, of the classic. Oh, I covered that one. You would love that episode because we did Dress to Kill. Also, it was me oh, yeah. with really Elizabeth like- Cantwell, who's a poet. She's the wife of Christopher Cantwell, who did Halt and Catch Fire. And we did this episode on sex, gender, and final girls in horror. And we did Cat People and Dress to Kill were two well, of I can them. Have to listen to that. Mandy was one, and I'm blanking on I think Vampire's Kiss was another one, yeah. Oh, such an interesting set of picks. Yes, it's yeah. it, and it's really um, a visual knockout tune. It's like really early 80s cocaine uh, um, craziness. So if people haven't seen that, they should definitely see that. 
I mean, I almost pick, said we should do the canyons for this because that's sort of the famous low oh, for a Yes, Lindsay Lohan. Yeah. Yeah, Lindsay Lohan. There's the, there was the famous New York Mag, Times Magazine behind the scenes of that that kind of torpedoed the film. But it's a screenplay by Brett Easton Ellis, who, who introduced American Gigolo when I saw it last weekend here in New York. Um, and um it's not it movie doesn't work but it's fascinating and interesting and has moments that are you know i just i think all of schrader is worth watching um there's always interesting stuff and um and you know you just can't count him out um because he you know he's really uh uh, he's been through it. He's been up. He's been down. He's been he really has. taken yeah. away from them. He's been fired from many things. And he, and he's just still keeps on ticking, posting on Facebook, making everyone angry. I know. Char, char. <laughs> I mean, I think actors keep, you know, the actors, he's beloved by actors. They want to work with him again and again. And I think it really speaks to um, that he's just a, a total original who, um is so idiosyncratic and, 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 um, and yeah, I mean, I do think he's going to write. He often is, you do get to see great different sides of him when he's working with other people's material. Um, um, but there's, there's not, there's something so satisfying about when he's returning to his own, uh, obsessions, which never seem to leave him. So I'm really excited about his new one, um, Master Gardener forthcoming. Um, but yeah, he, um, he's worth a deep dive, I said. <laughs> yes. Well, I want to thank you for sending me on a deep dive for this. It was real pleasurable to go through all of these again, and especially hardcore, which I can't remember if I saw. So I'm just kind of counting it as a new one to me. But yeah, so I want to thank you so much for doing this, Megan. It's always a treat. This was so much fun. Thanks for having me. Hope to come back again. Oh, anytime. And we'll wrap this up with more thoughts. From Paul Schrader on directing, once again from the book Schrader on Schrader, and voiced by Sean Burns. There's a maxim of Truffaut's when I'm writing, I like directing best. When I'm directing, I like editing best. And when I'm editing, I like writing best. I think most directors would agree with that. I actually do like directing. I can be away from it a little longer than some others, perhaps, but... I wouldn't be happy to let more than two years go by without directing. It has a few irreplaceable pleasures. One is the communable pleasure of being in charge of an artistic group or a troupe, your own little gypsy band. All the communal warmth that comes from arriving on the set in the morning, saying hello to people, knowing about their personal lives. Having that extended family is very pleasurable, particularly for someone who's been a writer in the past. It's a very welcome antidote to the solitude of writing. And there's this kind of on-the-spot rush that you get from directing, which you usually have first thing in the morning when the actors are out there and they start blocking the scene, and then for 15 or 20 minutes, you're suddenly alive. They're moving around, you're moving around, you watch the scene from one side, you watch it from another, you crawl right between them and watch it, and you watch them from a distance. You walk this way, that way, and you have them do it over and over again, and you see all kinds of different things. Suddenly, after four or five rehearsals like this, you step back, it comes to mind, and you say, okay, this is it. We do this shot, which cuts to this shot, which cuts to that shot. Eight setups. Then the rest of the day, you monitor those decisions, which made in the heat of the moment, one creative burst. That's the most exhilarating part of the day for a director. 
more and more I find that I cut in the camera. I shoot the shot, cut so that I don't shoot a master a lot of times. First rule of directing is always shoot a master, but often if you get involved in some very interesting blocking, then there is no master. People are not in the place where can you actually have a master. The only reason to do the master is that's something you can show the editor. As you make more and more films, you grow confident enough just to shoot the coverage. You don't even bother to shoot dialogue from an angle when you're not going to be at that angle. Therefore, you wed yourself to an editing pattern. This is something I said the other day. I shot one rather interesting move, then I did some coverage, but I never covered the area of the move. The script supervisor said to me, the actors never did the dialogue that you did during that rather peculiar move. I said, I know, I want to be married to it. I don't want to have the choice of not using it. I don't want to have the option of being cowardly in the editing room. I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen.